Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week we are joined from Jerusalem by Dr. Michael Marmo, who is Associate Professor of Jewish Theology at HUC JIR's Taub family campus in Israel, in Jerusalem, and having previously been dean of the Jerusalem campus there. And in recent years, he has taught courses across the full plethora of theology and parashat hashavur, homiletics, pluralistic Jewish education, amongst other things. And he's written in really numerous publications. And I've come to know many of his many of his writings in different journals and also on the torah.com too which will form part of today's discussion of course on nitzavim and we look forward to exploring the notion of chosenness and maybe to begin there were of course various references to god choosing and in deuteronomy's formulation in chapter 26 we really see the notion of a kind of reciprocal relationship although i should maybe say you know, there are no direct references found in the bible to a particular notion of chosen people maybe to begin dr mama to just go through how you see the various formulations and maybe how they differ even your statement that the Hebrew Bible doesn't quite talk about the people of Israel being chosen, even that is contentious. That's to say there are a few passages. You mentioned Deuteronomy, which is certainly a focus for biblical thought and speculation on the question of the status of the people of Israel. But in Deuteronomy and in a number of other books in the Hebrew Bible, it gets awfully close to talking about the chosen people, the prophet Yeshayahu, Isaiah talks about Ami Bechiri, my people who are chosen, which sounds remarkably like chosen people when you think about it. But actually, the differences of terminology are more, it would appear, than differences of literary flourish or nuance, but they might indicate, that's at least uh, one way of reading all of this, they might indicate... Um, different, significantly different emphases or understandings about what it means to be to be chosen. I'll quote perhaps a sentence that comes to mind before we talk about some of the specifics in the Hebrew Bible. In Louis Jacobs's book, We Have Reason to Believe, the last of whose chapters is devoted to this theme of the chosen people idea. And he begins in um, typically a terse and aphoristic style by simply stating, few of Judaism's teachings have been so misunderstood as the doctrine of the chosen people. Now, that's, of course, true for polemical reasons, right? In its encounter, with, particularly with Christianity, but also with Islam, and then later with kind of the Western modern world, Jews have often felt it necessary to apologize for or explain away 
aspects of the chosenness concept which they find difficult or embarrassing. Look, there are statements to be found within the Hebrew Bible which do indicate um, even a, a claim to superiority. You referenced Deuteronomy 26, and there there is a kind of gradation made uh, where the term Elyon, superior to, above the other nations, is indicated. But by and large, what we find both in Deuteronomy and in a number of other sources in the Hebrew Bible doesn't say a kind of caricatured version of you're better, I like you more, you get special treatment. Rather, it tends to, you'll find the terminology, tends to make use of a form of the word kadosh, which means in its root sense, set apart, sanctified, put in a different category. The root bachar, to choose, is used. There's all kinds of choosing that gets made in the Hebrew Bible. The Levites are chosen from amongst the other people. Jerusalem is chosen from amongst all other places. David is chosen from amongst all the potential monarchs, etc. But we also find that root, Bachar, used in relation to uh, the people of Israel. And perhaps the most mysterious, there's other terminology, Nachala, which has within it the notion of an inheritance or a special property, a sense of ownership. And then perhaps the most mysterious of the biblical terms, segula. Segula, which is really quite untranslatable. And it's only, I think, with the growth of modern biblical criticism and the exploration of cognate sources in the ancient Near East, that we've got a little bit closer to understanding what the Hebrew Bible may have meant when it refers to the people Israel as Am Segula. Thank you for that important opening. Of course, the notion of election has maybe been troubling. It's maybe some people find it troubling now. Of course, Rabbi Dr. Louis Jacobs found it troubling and put it in a certain context. What were maybe the approaches that pre-modern times thinkers from pre-modern times took in their kind of reconceptualization of of election given the privilege of this format i'm going to skip over centuries and millennia of jewish thought and creativity and perhaps focus in in a somewhat kind of stylized and caricatured way into the conflicting and contrasting opinions of two great figures of medieval Jewish thought and creativity, namely Yudah HaLevi and the Rambam Maimonides. There is a stark contrast between the ways in which these two towering figures went about thinking about the status of the people Israel. After all, in Parashat Nitzavim, there's nothing explicitly in Nitzavim that's too obviously about chosenness, but it's all about uh, peoplehood. So that you may be set up this day or to set you up this day as as a people. What does that mean? What does it mean to be the people Israel? In, again, somewhat caricature terms, I would put it this way. For Abba Yudah HaLevi, it means something intrinsic. It means something biological. It means something ontological, if I can use that fancy word. It's about 
who you are, what you are. To be a member of the people Israel sets you apart in some way, in a way which is sometimes uncomfortable for us to read these days because of what happened to such theories in the centuries which followed Yudah Halevi. He really does suggest that every person in the world belongs to a people, and each of those peoples could be compared to a part of the body politic, of the body of humanity. And there's something about being a Jew, he would argue, which puts you at the heart of that body. Maimonides disagrees fundamentally with this notion that somehow being part of the chosen people means you have an innate superiority. Rather for for Maimonides and for his uh, those who preceded him and those of us who come after him, the notion of chosenness is seen fundamentally in conditional terms. It's a potential. You have been charged with a different, you've been dealt a different hand than somebody born to another people, but now it's up to you what you do with the hand that you've dealt. And there is, if you like, a conditional aspect Maimonides would not believe, I would argue, that being born a Jew gives you some different metaphysical state. It is rather a challenge for you to uh, fulfill a heavier burden of mitzvot, of commandments, and perhaps to be susceptible to or to have the potential for the rewards of being part of the Jewish people. So I would point, I'm skipping over elegantly, all the literature of the rabbis, I've really done, I haven't done them any justice at all, but I would focus in on this contrast. Is, as Yudah Halevi would argue, being part of the Jewish people a statement of who you are, or as Maimonides might argue, a call to who what you might be? Now, thank you for bringing that very important argument in the Middle Ages between those two great towering figures. And obviously, we reach with this concept in the character of Spinoza, an important milestone. How does he react to the notion of chosenness and the chosen people claim? Benedict Baruch Spinoza changes the conversation. Some would argue that the things that he says were prefaced by Christian, early Christian critics or Greek uh, pagan critics of Judaism. But Spinoza, himself a Jew, albeit a controversial one who famously was put in cheirem for his opinions, he makes a case against any traditional notion of chosenness, which is based on his philosophical understanding of God. It is impossible, in Spinoza's view, to hold with an idea, the notion of a God who has preferences, a God who says, I'll have the beef, not the chicken, or a God who says West Ham and not Burnley. It's not Those are all fundamentally human aspects or attributes. To choose something, to prefer something, to be so acted upon so that one has a preference, is that's human speak. That's us talking. And it's us reflecting the crudest of our human frailties 
onto the divine. God in order to be God. When Spinoza famously says, Deus Siva Natura, God, or you might otherwise say nature, he's telling you, he's tipping his hand what he means by God. God is the reality that is. So he claims, uh, Spinoza, in his tractate, the Hebrews in the time of the Bible were justified, if you like, in thinking of themselves as chosen. How had they been chosen? They were lucky enough to be born into a place with a temperate climate, with enough food for them to eat, in a geopolitical setting that allowed them to flourish. To the extent that they were fortune shone upon them, in this way they were chosen, okay? That's not the same as saying God went to the catalog of all the peoples and pointed at one of them and said, I think I'll have that one. Maybe the subtlety is small, but I wonder if you might point out to the difference between Spinoza and Maimonides in in relation to this. How far apart are they? That's actually quite a profound question. There is an argument amongst readers of Spinoza, the degree to which Spinoza is a Maimonidean or profoundly anti-Maimonidean. First of all, let's look at it from the point of view of results. Maimonides wants to persuade you to live the life of a faithful Jew true to the dictates of Torah. Spinoza doesn't. Maimonides believes that Moses was the greatest prophet there ever was. Nobody ever comes close to the status that Moses achieved. Spinoza does not. Spinoza talks freely about Moses amongst the prophets. He's also quite critical of the prophets of Israel for having had hallucinatory states and also auto-suggestions and all the rest of it. So Maimonides is fundamentally an insider teaching us, he is philosophically extremely sophisticated, and he has been deeply influenced by the thought of Aristotle and other ideas in Greek and Islamic philosophy, but it's all about perpetuating the Jewish story. Spinoza would not deny his Jewish origins, but he does not attribute any, will not allow any special pleading for the Jewish case. And he doesn't think there's anything particularly remarkable about the Jewish thing. He quotes, he interlaces in his writing quotes from Jesus Christ in a way that you'd be very hard pressed to find Maimonides doing, even if you read him very closely. Now, there is a similarity between the two of them because they both take ideas seriously and that each of them is looking for a God concept that meets the most rigorous requirements of their philosophical categories. But they come to profoundly different conclusions, okay? And they take this in very different directions. Spinoza's opinions have had a profound impact on those who didn't go uh, his route, in, in a sense, stepping out of the Jewish story, I'll mention a profoundly significant 20th century American Jewish thinker, Mordechai Kaplan. Mordechai Kaplan distanced himself from Spinoza in various ways, but as I read him on the issue of chosenness, he is profoundly Spinozistic. He's basically saying, a God you might be able to believe in 
is not a god who plays favorites. I think Kaplan also makes another point, a political point, which is that we live in a world, he writes, starting in the 1930s, he writes what he writes, we live in a world in which people claim vaunted status, chosen special elite status, and look at the grievous things they do when they start making such claims. We should have no part of this, all right? I'll give you one more example, Simon, if I may, of a contemporary thinker, Judith Plasco, one of the great Jewish feminist thinkers, who in her standing again at Sinai, attacks the notion of a kind of hierarchical conception of chosenness. And here too, I hear echoes of Spinoza in those 20th century. Now they're different from Spinoza because they're looking for ways within the Jewish conversation. Spinoza goes beyond the Jewish conversation. He in many ways had the claim to be the first modern individual, the first secular individual. He's he's on a different scale. He's playing in a different league. But these figures who I've mentioned, who are asking the internal Jewish question, are guided by what I would call the spirit of Spinoza when they say, the God in whom we believe is not a God who could possibly say, I choose you. Other thinkers are now answering a question in good rabbinic style. I'm answering a question you didn't ask. The other thinkers have profoundly disagreed with them and said the following, the only way it makes sense to be a modern Jew, the only way we can perpetuate our Jewish story is if we find a way, we might, it may involve reinterpretation, but we find a way of maintaining the concept of amsgula, of a treasured people, a special people, a holy people, a different people. And you find people, very different thinkers, like I'll mention a couple of names if any of your listeners have a spare week or two and want to start reading. A very important but difficult book by a man called Michael Wishagrad called The Body of Faith, in which he talks about this notion of the physical physicality of the election of Israel. Or you have a man called Will Herberg, who was very popular in the 50s and early 60s, who writes about chosenness, David Novak, others. I will mention here Franz Rosenzweig. Franz Rosenzweig, one of the most profoundly significant thinkers of the 20th century, who finds great significance. He doesn't, I'm not suggesting that he ha- he is translating one-to-one the thought of Rabbi Yudah Halevi, but actually, Yudah Levy was an important figure in Rosenzweig's worldview. He translated Halevi's poetry and so forth. And you see in his thought how central is the idea. We cannot let go of the idea that when we stand by the Torah and recite the Birkat Torah, we thank God for having chosen us from amongst all peoples. So you see amongst contemporary Jews who are thoughtful about their Judaism, radically different opinions on this stuff that we're reading about in the book of Deuteronomy during these weeks. Thank you so much for answering the question that I was going to ask, uh, which which I enjoyed. M- maybe overall, and just and they're standing on one leg, would you say that Jewish thought has followed or maybe diluted somewhat, but followed Spinoza or or not? 
I think that Jewish thought has been transformed since Spinoza. I think that you still find, I'm talking to you from Jerusalem, a city in which many of my fellow Jews have never heard of Spinoza. And if they have heard of him, they spit when they hear his name. So it's not as if everybody is Spinoza now, but to the extent that you are a modern or even a postmodern person, to the extent that you buy into certain conceptions of equality and universal truth, etc., you must be troubled by traditional, I want to argue, troubled in some way by traditional formulations of chosenness. And then you have a few strategies to reject those, as, say, a Kaplan did, although even when he rejects it, he says, I reject election, I'm in favor of something called vocation. And when you look at it rather closely, it's difficult to see how fundamentally different it is from the election that he's just rejected. So I guess what I'm saying is Jewish chosenness, you can't live with it, you can't live without it. You're stuck. And therefore, there are fascinating attempts by modern thinkers to re-understand, to reinterpret. We didn't mention here Zionism, but the, the Zionist movement was very taken up with different formulations. On the one hand, normalizing the Jews and trying to get them weaned off the idea of some special status. On the other hand, upholding the notion that the Jews have a distinct and particular path to tread in the world. Perhaps I'll leave you with a pun. It's a kind of a punny version of this. Am segula, that untranslatable term, which maybe according to these, uh, to modern scholars, has something to do, you find a vassal treatise in the ancient Near East where a dominant potentate will say about the minor king, you are my sgula, you are my special property, my, my jewel, my, my nest egg, or whatever it might be. The word sgula is connected in the Hebrew language to a term, lehistagel, uh, to change, to adapt. It might be that am sgula, this notion of a sgula nation, carries within it the notion of a nation capable of changing its self-understanding, capable of conceptualizing what it means to be an Amsagula. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mama, for walking a narrow tightrope that we continue to walk and for extracting from Deuteronomy 26 such important elements of our ongoing theology. You're most welcome. It was fun to be with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content that we have for you at jewishquest.org. We very much look forward to meeting again next week. <laughs>